Well, good morning. It's the 6th of August 2023, one day away from my birthday. And this is the uh, fourth episode in our series on the New Atheists and Christopher Hitchens in particular. I uh, wrote a doctorate on Christopher Hitchens, which I completed between 2014 and 2017. And uh, one of the things you have to do when you write a doctorate is you have to do what's called a critical literature review, which means you essentially read as much of or as or everything you can about the subject that you are researching in order to, I think, ensure that you are writing something that is original. A PhD has to be original which is what makes it so exciting to do. And if you read the literature on the subject that you are researching, then you can, you can ensure that your, your approach, uh, your conclusions are going to be new. You have to add to knowledge. And that's what I was doing with Christopher Hitchens. I was looking for certain lines of response to him that no one else had given before, and I, I was successful in that. So how have Christians and atheists and agnostics critically responded to Christopher Hitchens? And I suppose it's quite interesting that atheists are among those who have criticised him. I was obviously expecting apologists for Christianity, Islam, Judaism, which are the the three main targets of Hitchens' criticism. Um, Christianity probably more frequently than the other two, Judaism the least. Um, but to see atheists in there as well, and a few agnostics, but mainly atheists, was quite a surprise. It, it suggested to me that the new atheists certainly hadn't won over everyone who calls themselves an, athe an atheist. Um, and the criticisms of atheists are, I think, among the most interesting. Uh, they, I think they do equal, sometimes even outshine the response of Christians. So what I'm going to do in this podcast is I'm going to give you a small selection of some of the ways in which people have pushed back on Christopher Hitchens. So the first thing I noticed in the literature um, was that Christians have asked, what is new about new atheism? And I think in a way, that's not a that can't be a criticism of the new atheists themselves because they never called themselves the new atheists. That, that's a term that was made up by Gary Wolf, the journalist who wrote an article uh, about the new atheists in, in Wired magazine back in 2006. So it's more criticism of the term itself. And in fact, Hitchens denied that there was anything really substantially new about what the new atheists were saying. Um, but it's important to emphasize this because the word new 
captured the imaginations of many people. We all like to find something new. We all like to um, have something new, brand new as it were. Um, but in an interview to the Guardian newspaper back in 2010, um, Hitchens, whilst reflecting on the new atheism, said, in a sense, there is nothing new about new atheism except that new scientific discoveries have given the new atheists greater confidence in criticising religion. And also the new atheists were, I suppose, responding to a new crisis, which is uh, what's like fundamentalist violence in particular, the 9-11 uh, atrocity and also the Salman Rushdie affair which goes back to the 1980s it goes back to 1988 when Salman Rushdie had a fatwa imposed on him by the Ayatollah of Iran for writing um, a novel called the Satanic Verses which were held to be blasphemous by Muslim or some Muslim people but both of these phenomena um, science versus religion, uh, religiously fueled violence, are nothing new. Uh, so take, for example, the, the antipathy or the supposed antipathy between science and, and religion. We see that in Bertrand Russell's writing, the 1920s. Um, we see atheist denunciation of religiously fueled violence well before the new atheists ever got onto the scene, again, Bertrand Russell uh, condemned uh, religious violence. So what is new? Is there anything new? Is, is Hitchens right to deny that there is fundamentally anything new about the new atheists? Now, Alistair McGrath and John Lennox have both argued that new atheism is new because of the anger, the, the belligerence, of tone and the desire to convert and yet there are precedents for this too within atheism so if you go back to the 1930s when joseph stalin was uh, the premier of the soviet union there was an organization called the league against the militant godless and they were extremely belligerent towards christianity in particular um, but they also dealt out a lot of violence to Jews as well. Um, so their violence, their anger, their rage against religion was far greater than anything the new atheists came up with. But certainly the, the, the anger within atheism is there long before the new atheists came on the scene. I think one of the reasons why the new atheists are so angry why there is this, uh, you know, a, a, a recrudescence, I'm using that term correctly this time. Um, the reason why there is a recrudescence of atheist anger is caused by the new atheist perception that, that religion has a privileged position within society, that respect is the, is the default position for religion and its representatives. And yet, according to the new atheists, if religion is unchecked, what happens if it's not tamed? It results in fatwas against novelists 
and terrorist atrocities like 9-11. So if new atheism is not new in substance and it's not new in form, I think what is new about it is its method of communication. So the new atheists come to prominence at a time when the internet and social media are really taking off. So if we go back to 2006, many people, more people had access to the internet than ever before and social media is on the rise and the new atheists are very good at using the internet and the social media that you find on the internet to communicate their message. And a lot of atheists now are able to connect with each other and engage in activism. Okay, there we are. So, specifically then, what other problems do critics see in your atheism? Well, there is the problem with terminology. The word faith. The New Atheists are very inaccurate in their use of the term faith. So for the New Atheists, faith is, in essence, believing religious teachings in the absence of evidence and, in fact, in the, 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 in the teeth of evidence. So there's counter-evidence and the religious deny that counter-evidence. And the, the critic who's really picked this one up is the professor of, of literature, a man called Terry Eagleton, um, who I think has Catholic influence in his life. I'm not sure whether he is a practicing Catholic or whether he grew up as one and has since left the faith, but perhaps still has some sort of resonance with Catholicism. I, I'm, I'm not sure. But certainly what he says about faith is very biblical. So he says that faith is not believing without evidence. Faith is not believing in spite of the counter-evidence, but it is trust given once evidence has been accepted. And this is in line with the fact that the Greek word for faith, which is pistis, uh, means trust. And that's essentially what Christians do. They look for evidence that God is trustworthy. They look for the evidence that God exists. Perhaps not all of them. But the notion of looking for evidence of God's existence and his trustworthiness is an essential part of many Christians' lives. So faith is a cognitive thing as much as a, a sentient thing. Okay, let's move on to factual errors. Uh, Mark Roberts, who has a doctorate from Harvard University in New Testament study, um, has identified 15 factual errors in Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. I'm not going to go through all 15 uh, examples, but one example is where Hitchens disputes the historicity of the census ordered, sorry, ordered, the census ordered by the Roman Emperor Augustus. 
and referred to in Luke's Gospel, so you know the story. Augustus orders a census of the Roman Empire. Everybody has to return uh, to his uh, or her home hometown uh, or birthplace, sorry, um, the, the place of their origin, and to be counted in this census. And according to Hitchens, uh, there is no reference to any Augustan census by any Roman historian. Therefore, the census probably never happened. Therefore, the gospel account of Joseph having to return to his um, ancestral home, which is Bethlehem, he has to leave Nazareth. He takes Mary, his pregnant wife, with him to, to Bethlehem to be to be counted in the census. That clearly, therefore, did not happen. There's no historical evidence outside of Scripture to say that that happened. But the assertion that there is no reference to a census by Augustus, uh, by any Roman historian, is not true. In the Roman historian Tacitus's book, The Annals, there is a reference to Augustus taking a military census. So, there we are. Um, but also, Augustus himself wrote a rather egotistically titled book called The Deeds of the Divine Augustus. And that was published in AD 14. I don't think very long before Augustus died. I'm not sure. I should know. I, I, I've I taught the history of Augustus's reign um, to a classical civilization A-level class some years ago. But in that book called The Deeds of the Divine Augustus, um, the, the Roman emperor refers to three censuses that he took. One in 28 BC, one in 8 BC, and one in 14 AD. Uh, I think probably the 28 BC uh, census was not one that he took. Uh, but was taken by somebody else who was governing Rome at the time. And the 8 BC census could have been the census referred to by Luke. So the lesson here is what my father used to wisely tell me. Before you open your mouth, <laughs> get your facts right. <laughs> and I think also... The lack of accuracy on the part of Christopher Hitchens is a sign of just how quickly the uh, the book God is Not Great was written. Christopher Hitchens was quite keen to get on the bandwagon of the new atheist cause. And I don't blame him because, you know, if you're a writer and you see an opportunity, then then you take it. You know, he, li he lives by his pen, as it were. But if you're criticising something, at least show sufficient respect for it to get your comments about it factually correct. Okay, let's move on to the Hitchens challenge. Now, you'll probably remember from previous podcasts that Hitchens challenge runs like this. Can you name a good thing that a religious person can do that a non-religious person cannot? And Hitchens says, well, no. I mean, we can all be good regardless of our beliefs. Then he goes on, now can you name a bad thing that only a religious person can do? In other words, it's their religion that is causing them to do something that is uniquely wrong. And according to Peter Hitchens, um, who is the brother of Christopher Hitchens, 
Christopher Hitchens answered the first half of his challenge himself. And he says, there is something, there is a good thing that a religious person did that a non-religious person could not do. And that is the creation of the trade union solidarity by the Catholic Polish uh, trade unionists, Lech Walesa. Um, and Hitchens, I think, probably thought that it was Valencia's Christian faith that enabled him to defy the communist Polish state and the Soviet Union, the power behind Polish communism. What about the goodness of biblical morality? Well, much has been written and said in response to Hitchens' accusation that biblical morality is immoral. So there's not enough time to explore the many ways in which Christians have pushed back on this. Um, but, I come to, but I'm going to choose two. One is Hitchens' accusation that the Bible's morality preaches violence. And secondly, what he regards as the immorality, excuse me, the immorality of the atonement. Alistair McGrath, um, who is a theologian, points to Jesus who demonstrates a non-violent response to the violence that he suffers during his trials and execution. So we know that Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. I can only imagine that he was arrested quite violently. He is taken to trial before the high priest Caiaphas and he is struck in the face during that trial. He, when he's handed over to the Roman soldiers before his crucifixion, he has a crown of thorns thrust onto his, onto his head and he is beaten by the guards, which is, I gather, the usual thing that happened to criminals before they were executed. And then, of course, he suffers the violence of the crucifixion himself. And at no point does Jesus resort to violence. Uh, one of his followers does. Peter is identified as drawing his sword and cutting off the, the ear of the high priest's servant. But Jesus intervenes, stops the violence and heals the servant, uh, puts his ear back. And... Therefore, Jesus does not preach a violent ethic, either through what he says or through what he does. Therefore, the idea that biblical morality has at its heart religious violence is incorrect. And there's a very good example of pacifism and forgiveness going together. Um, you may remember uh, I'm not sure which year this is. We're going back maybe 14 years. I'm not sure. Uh, 2006, I'm not sure. But the uh, the Christian Amish community in a village called Nickel Dimes, which is uh, situated in Pennsylvania, uh, suffered a terrible uh, tragedy when a gunman who hates God, or who hated God because I think he committed suicide after he'd carried this out, um walked in, into an Amish school and opened fire and killed uh, people, young people. I think maybe teachers died as well. 
and the Amish community publicly forgave the gunman and the the wife of the gunman was very grateful for their forgiveness so there's a very good example of how Christians um, have followed the the pacifist forgiveness model that Jesus himself um, exemplified so well Hitchens also condemns the crucifixion's message of forgiveness as as wrong he asks the question how can God forgive the sins done by one person to another when it is the victim alone who has the right to forgive. John Lennox, who is a mathematician who is taught at Oxford University, uh, says in response, sin is against people, I'm not quoting him here, but in, in essence he says, sin is, is against people, but it's, it is also against God who prohibits sin. So people are created by God, and there is God's law. So when someone mistreats another human being, they are mistreating someone whom God has made, and they are breaking God's law. Therefore, God does have the right to forgive people of mistreating each other and for transgressing his law. But that does not override the person who's been mistreated and their right or not to forgive. So God may have forgiven the perpetrator, but the victim may choose not to. So that means that the, the cross does not override personal responsibility to forgive. God may have forgiven, but the victim may not. And that also doesn't mean to say that there shouldn't be any justice either. So people who have committed crimes and who have become Christians are forgiven by God, but God doesn't release them from their prison sentence. They have to serve their prison sentence nevertheless, or their community service or whatever they've been given as a punishment. The next part of this podcast looks at Hitchens' use and abuse of history. And as a historian, my, my second PhD is in the history of the First World War, um, I'm very interested in how Hitchens uses history, and he has to because his claim that religion has gravely damaged humanity requires historical evidence. And Hitchens furnishes plenty of data, but his gish gallop, as we might call it, where he piles on loads of evidence, often not concerned at the same time with its accuracy, um, is, I think, perhaps the worst aspect of his writing. <laughs> um, and it's certainly open to counterexamples and corrections. So David Bentley Hart, who is a theologian, in his book, Atheist Delusions, The Christian Revolution and Its Fashionable Enemies, and I do recommend that you read the book, um, corrects new atheist historical myths, such as religion as a or the great cause of war. That's that's one that often comes up, doesn't it? Oh, don't get involved in religion, it, it just causes wars. But Bentley Hart does a very good job at challenging the idea that religion is the most likely cause of war. Um, he challenges atheist myths about Galileo, the frequency and the extent of witch hunts. Uh, so for example, um, Bentley Hart 
provides evidence of how the church more often than not um, prohibited the persecution of people as witches. And of course the, the Spanish Inquisition, that's another favourite of the New Atheists, and Bentley Hart puts that into perspective and says that, that the Spanish Inquisition was, was, was far less um, violent and damaging than it has been portrayed. But let's take one example, okay? Um, and this is, a, I think, a prejudice that is shared not only by atheists, but by most people. Um, and that is that the Christian Middle Ages, that time in European history, I think dated from about 900 to 1500. Very rough dates, I think. Um was a time of ignorance and superstition so everybody's walking around believing all kinds of weird things and doing terrible things because of that ignorance but bentley hart says the the renaissance was a product of the vibrant scholarship of the middle ages um and there's a writer he's just come to mind so i'm going to mention him now a man called seb falk um, Seb, which I think is short for Sebastian, and, and Falk, which I think is spelled F-A-L-K, F-A-L-K, sorry. Um, he wrote a book called The Light Ages, where he challenges the view that the medieval times were times of ignorance and barbarism. Um, and he certainly provides evidence of the vibrant scholarship that Bentley Hart is referring to here. And in addition to that, um, the vast majority of historians of science, according to Bentley Hart, um, believe that there are continuities between science's development during the Middle Ages all the way up to the modern period. So one of the sciences that the people of the Middle Ages specialised in and did very well in was astronomy. And the Roman Catholic Church for 600 years, I think, was the principal sponsor of astronomical research. Okay, let's move on to secular dictatorships now. So Hitchens says that religion is the cause of dictatorships in the form of theocracies. But also that if atheist secular dictatorships have committed crimes against their people it is only when they took on the character of religion so if you set up an atheist state that becomes a dictatorship it has become a dictatorship because it's functioning like a religious dictatorship in the sense that the leader demands that he is worshipped and that there is unconditional and total obedience to him on the part of his people. And Peter Hitchens has a very interesting counter-argument to this. He says that atheist dictatorships exploited the desire to worship. So people have a natural desire to worship, and atheist dictatorships exploited that and channeled that worship onto, onto the leader. So Stalin was uh, worshipped. I mean, there were, there were hymns written to Stalin. 
But the fact that atheist dictatorships exploit their desire to worship does not mean that they cease to be atheistic at their core. And Peter Hitchens also makes a very interesting point. He says, to be able to, to demand that people worship the leader um, would ha means that those dictatorships would have to be atheistic. If you, if you believe in God, then you'd say, well, you, know, you need to worship God. But if we don't believe there is a God, then that enables the, the leader of that society to say, well, I am now your God. So they have to be atheist in the first place in order for the worship of the leader to happen. Okay, what about another favourite of Christopher Hitchens, which is the idea that there is an inexorable conflict between faith and science? Well, Hitchens certainly subscribes to the view, the very simplistic view, that religion and science are in conflict, and that's the only relationship that is possible between them. Why is that? Well, on the one hand, science is rational, religion is irrational. Science and religion can therefore only be in conflict. That's essentially his view. And what do we do with that? Well, Alistair McGrath, I've already mentioned him before, um, was a biochemist before he became a theologian. And in contradiction to Hitchens, he refers to two historians of science, people who actually know what they're talking about when it comes to science. And the first uh, one, the first person is Ian Barbour, B-A-R-B-O-U-R, Ian Barber, maybe, um, an American historian of science who, in his book, When Science Meets Religion, um, delineates four types of relationship between religion and science. So it's not just a, a relationship of conflict there are four types of relationship now clearly there has been conflict so Barbour or Barber admits that he says yes there has been conflict but there has also been independent coexistence so religion and science you know live alongside each other peacefully there has been dialogue though so theologians and scientists have sat down and talked to each other, shock horror, and have also learned from each other as well. And then there is the, uh, the, the relationship of integration. So religion and science have, at times in history, um, been mixed together. Um, and I think you can see that in the early modern scientists, uh, such as Isaac Newton and Francis Bacon. Uh, Francis Bacon said there are two books. There is the book of nature and there is the book of God's word. And the rational person investigates both. Um, <clears throat> and McGrath also references John Hedley Brook, who I think is perhaps the most well-known of historians of science. Um, his work is certainly familiar to me, and he talks about three different types of relationship. One is conflict. One is complementarity, which I suppose would cover what Barbour or Barber says about independent coexistence and dialogue. And Hedleybrook also talks about integration, when science and religion are, are mixed together in order to be able to understand the world and God better.
Okay, um, let's move on to problems with materialism. And materialism is the worldview that says there is nothing in existence other than matter. And Hitchens is a materialist. So there are no spirits or gods or angels or whatever. There are no non-material entities in the universe. So therefore human beings are purely made up of, of matter. And Peter S. Williams, the Christian philosopher and apologist, uh, draws upon the work of C.E.M. Jode to deal with Hitchens' materialism. So let's run the argument that Peter S. Williams presents. If materialism is true, uh, according to C.E.M. Jode, then a person is no more than his or her body. An individual's reasoning is a bodily function, therefore, like blood pressure or body temperature or digestion. This bears no connection to facts external to the body, but only to the bodily conditions of which it is a function. Now, as materialism makes statements about facts external to the body, as well as making statements about individual bodies, materialism is self-refuting. Williams continues, uh, Hitchens holds religious people culpable for their crimes. He regards humans as having free will, and that certainly is the case. The, the moral outrage of Christopher Hitchens, and rightly so, of people who... Uh, blow others up because of their religious convictions um, is based upon the, the belief that humans have free will. Yet you cannot be a materialist and be a believer in free will, according to C.E.M. Jode. If an individual is all and nothing more than his or her physical body, then his or her behaviour is ultimately explainable in terms of the same laws that govern the motion of molecules. Just turning the page here. A person therefore has no choice but to act according to these laws. Therefore, no one is culpable for his or her wrongdoing. Somebody may be responsible for something in the sense that, that he or she was the one who did that action, but they're not morally culpable because they could do no other action than the one they performed because they are determined in their behavior by the laws of molecules. There we are. Okay, um, let's move on to atheist critics then. There have been a range of responses from atheists, and I want to focus in on what I like to call pure atheism. And this is atheism that consciously has stripped itself of any Christian influence and has drawn the conclusions that come from that. And I associate uh, pure atheism with philosophers such as John Gray and Alex Rosenberg. Now, I'm not saying that, that John Gray holds what I call the position of pure atheism, but what I'm saying is that is that John Gray is aware of how atheists still think within the Christian framework. So they, so the new atheists deny there is a God, they rail against religion, they, they say we're glad there is no God, 
and yet they are still operating within a Christian intellectual heritage. So there's a contradiction there. So what's John Gray's argument? Well, he says that you can see within your atheism the continuing, continuing, sorry, it's rather early in the morning, a continuing influence of Christianity through such ideas as humans are special within the natural world because of their rationality and moral conscience. And that's the sort of argument that you see in Thomas Aquinas. The New Atheists believe in objective universal morality. That's very much a theistic idea, isn't it? Um, but obviously within, within the New Atheists' um, context, it's Christianity that has done most to present that idea. And of course, the New Atheists, such as Christopher Hitchens, believe in free will. Um, and free will is a, is a notion that is invented by Christians. They're the ones who come up with it. Um, <clears throat> believe it or not, yes, I'm quite surprised by that, but the idea of free will is something that is very much a product, belief in free will is a, is a product of, of Christian uh, civilization. And Alex Rosenberg takes materialism to its logical conclusion in a way that the New Atheists don't. He says, well, if the universe is, is nihilistic, then there are no intrinsic values in the universe. Therefore, morality can't be objective. It, it, it is subjective. And then secondly, he argues, as C.E.M. Jode does, that free will on a materialist perspective does not exist. So how do the new atheists use that concept? Very good question. Okay. Well, that's been rather a, a long podcast. 38 minutes, I think, we've reached. So we're just winding down here, <laughs> which is the name of this music, actually. And if you are interested in free music, then do go to podcast.co, where you can find this music. It's great. It's a wonderful website, and it's free. It's copyright free. So much has been said, then, in response to the new atheists, and I have given you a a taste of some of them so where are we going in the next podcast you few people who are listening and downloading well i appreciate that well in the next podcast i shall begin to present my responses to christopher hitchens the things that i have noticed are lacking in his writings and presenting a christian response so until next time take care God bless you, if you don't mind my saying, and don't stop thinking. <laughs>